China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Max Englein, Chief Economist at the Mercator Institute for China Studies, or MERICS, as it's widely known. Today we'll be discussing his recent co-authored report, The Party Knows Best, Aligning Economic Actors with China's Strategic Goals. Max, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. First question before we dive into the substance is a little bit about yourself. I'm curious, your background, how did you find this intersection of political economy and China? Well, I guess it was pure coincidence. I was working as a research assistant during my graduate studies, studying economics, so I had nothing to do with China, when my professor asked me if I want to go to Chengdu to teach economics. I couldn't even find Chengdu on the map, to be honest, at that time, nor did I know anything about China. I fell in love with the country. It triggered my, my research interest. And then I pursued ways to make that happen. And then I had the opportunity to start my PhD at Hong Kong U, so Hong Kong University. And while I was there, six months in, I got the opportunity to open up the German Chamber's office in Shenzhen. And that was just too good an opportunity to miss out. And I actually, with a heavy heart, stopped my PhD at Hong Kong U and I pursued it differently later on and started the German Chamber's office in, in Shenzhen and then went on to went, become their economic analyst for Greater China. And that's was a wild ride. And can you just tell, I think most audience members will know of Merricks, but for those who haven't, can you just give a, a very brief overview of when it was founded, sort of the structure of it and what the main research pillars are? So we were founded 2013 as there was an acknowledgement that there's a lack of understanding China in the challenges and opportunities it faces. And we were founded here in Berlin as a European-focused think tank and trying to provide real practical knowledge on modern China. And we focus on, next to economics, we focus on China's foreign policy, but also uh, politics and society, and as well as science and innovation. So these are our pillars, currently around 30 researchers, full-time staff. So we're quite dedicated to the topic. Well, and I should also say that not only was Merrick's filling a gap in Europe, but there is no dedicated institution at the policy level and research level dedicated to China that I know of in the United States either. So you're doing something unique both for Europe, but for the United States. And I know certainly Merrick's and the output of Merrick's is one of the few institutions where I just know everyone in Washington will be reading the work that Merrick's puts out, such as the just incredibly high quality of it. I'm just really glad to talk about this report today. I wonder, before I do ask you about the report, just one stock-taking question, which is, we're recording this on October 30th. I'd say at the end of the summer, there was a acute level of anxiety by economic analysts and analysts of China more broadly about the state of the economy. I am guilty of this as well. I co-hosted an event on what the heck is going on in the Chinese economy. Those concerns have subsided to a large extent, although there's still a lot to watch in the real estate sector, especially with large property developers. But let me ask you, how do you assess the state of the Chinese economy, again, as of late October? Do you think they have essentially been able to bulldoze through a lot of the problems we were seeing this summer? Is this on the upside of a cyclical recovery? What do you see? Well, I mean, it's been quite a roller coaster ride, I must say, since China has come out of the pandemic. And I think it was accompanied with a lot of false expectations of the economy and the trajectory it's on. 
And to a large extent, I would say, because the discussion was that the economy is in crisis. I don't see it in crisis. It's under stress. But I think it's also, to a large extent, due to deliberate actions, and primarily with the government cracking down on the real estate sector, because it doesn't align with the priorities that Xi Jinping has set for the economy. So I think this took quite some guts to actually go after this. I mean, we've been talking about a, a real estate sector in China for quite some time. And I think it's natural that if you go after a sector that accounts for roughly 30% of the economy, that that's going to cause some tension. So I think overall, the economy is performing actually quite well. The only thing they really underestimated was how it's going to weigh down on sentiment, specifically household sentiment. I think that's something they just anticipated with a flip of a switch, they would go back to old consumption patterns. That's not happening. And also now that we're seeing better figures in October, I also don't buy into that at the moment. Um, the sentiment is still weak, so this is still very vulnerable. And it's not going to be on a more solid footing until the real estate sector really bottoms out if we're not there yet. I would imagine we'll return to this again in the discussion of the report, but can I just ask you an impressionistic summary of the discussions you're having with European companies about how they're thinking about the Chinese economy short term, but also long term? What are the, I know it's different for every company, but could you just give us a flavor? How pessimistic are companies becoming and are, are you having any conversations with companies or investors that are really fundamentally rethinking their China strategy? Well, actually, I think a lot of them are still on the optimistic end, and particularly if I'm looking at German companies. And I sometimes struggle if they really acknowledge the changes that are taking place. They are focusing a lot at the headline economic figures, which for most of their industries is irrelevant, and they're missing the structural changes. And a key figure, it's also in the report that I've been using for quite some time, is that there's a perception that the private sector is hurt and you have investment in the private companies contracting. But that misses the point of the real development isn't that they're doubling down investment in manufacturing sector. So if companies like in machinery, in chemical and automotive were thinking that they were going to come out of this pandemic and sales are going to go through the roof again, I think they missed these pictures. If they hadn't had good sales during the pandemic, they're not going to have them now and they're most likely not going to have them in the future. So I think it's the complexity of things that's causing a lot of distractions, not only within China, but also externally, that leads a lot of companies to not really have the eye on the ball in the real developments and how it's going to affect their business opportunities or the, the time horizon of their business opportunities. I'm not saying nobody has business opportunities, but I think they need to be careful about the time horizon that they will be maybe successful in China. Well, I'm now starting, I was going to ask you, why did you write this report? But I'm starting to see that maybe one of the key objectives was to put in one place and just a really succinctly written for 102 pages. And as is always the case with Merrick's reports, really fantastic graphic design and visualizations that make this the answer, I think, to that challenge you just posed of companies oftentimes seeing the trees but missing the forest. This is just the absolute best overview of Xi Jinping's political economy and what that's going to mean for the business investment and economic environment. Let me ask you, one of the ways we were going to structure this conversation is I'm going to quote some of the main conclusions throughout the report at the beginning of each section head and ask you to unpack it. But let me just first ask you for a bit of context about this. I just posited one possible motivation for writing it, but let me just ask you, what was the impetus 
for writing this. And even though you are steeped in political economy, was there anything that you changed your mind about or see in greater clarity after doing the work of researching and writing a very lengthy report on Xi Jinping's sort of economic vision and political economy? Well, first of all, I appreciate the praise. That's always good to hear. Sometimes we write stuff and you never know where it ends up. So it's always good to hear that. So where does this idea come from? So this might be a bit nerdy, but it comes from my personal frustration of the misunderstood third plenum in 2013. And that this continued throughout the years, that there was this never-ending optimism about China pursuing a liberal market reform path in integration. And it just struck me that I had a very different opinion on this. And I had the ambition to write with my colleagues to write a sophisticated piece that kind of pulls all the strings together of all the evidence that we think we've had. But there was a little bit of here, there was a little bit of there on the innovation side, on the corporate side, on the consumption side. So we tried to work with basically the counter arguments that we were confronted with and try to lay them out and try to find the evidence and lay out a path that China's on. And I mean, we tried to be, I think, very nuanced in our approach. And that's also about basically accepting China for what type of an actor it is and it will be. And then responding to that and not get distracted by this never-ending optimistic view before it's too late, basically. Yeah. Although, I mean, the spirit of the third plenum lives on to this day. I mean, I still have conversations where folks who are very knowledgeable about China or have deep economic or financial exposure think, I think because it's understood that the path China is on is in many ways ruinous to China's own interests. I think there's just this optimism that at some point there's going to be enough pain felt in the system that it will necessitate or force a change. So in 2013, I think it was Xi Jinping gets it. The third plenum indicates he understands the importance of markets. I think the version now is something to the effect of, well, they can't go on this path because it's just not going to work. And I think as you effectively lay out in the report... There are deep, deep foundations now supporting this agenda that Xi Jinping is driving. So let's get right into it. So I've got here six key conclusions that I want to ask you in turn and would just ask you to, for the audience, after I read these off, just unpack these a bit more and what you think some of the sort of key evidence supporting this is and and your own assessment of what this will mean. So number one is you write, Xi Jinping's new policies are responding to slower growth and perceived Western containment, but they also aim to establish foundations for a new development path for the economy. As I was just mentioning before we clicked record, I think many would understand these policies are a response to perceived Western containment. I'm not sure there's a good understanding of that new development path. So could you unpack that a bit of what is the new development path and what are the kind of main policy pillars supporting that? Yeah, so I think, first of all, it reflects the basically looking at the Western system, the liberal system as a failure and that this is not a path that is suitable for China and the Communist Party for that matter. And I think the core element of this, that there is an understanding that markets are efficient and competition is efficient, but it needs to be contained and allocated, or I should say constrained by the party and resources should be allocated in the right direction that serve the national purpose. So 
that's why I think it makes it even more difficult to grasp the Chinese system. In the past, we always had this blah, blah, blah with Chinese characteristics. And I think this was a very, yes, maybe helpful at the time, but at the end, also a sloppy way of still making believe that China is overall pursuing a similar economic system as Western countries is. And I think this new development path comes with a sense of self-confidence that China has achieved in terms of the progress they have made, in terms of the economic weight that they have. And they are trying to define a way that works best in their political system. And I think this is, I think the core element of this, you have market mechanisms, but it's aligned or it's, it's accompanied with more control over economic actors and trying to make use of them. So, I mean, the Chinese economy is in a very different state of just a few decades ago, and they can use this leverage of the success of the past. And I think that's something they're trying to build on and use this as a foundation to get them on the path. And I think what we shouldn't forget here is that the long-term view of this, this is a path that aims to achieve this over 2035 and then 2049. So it's just this divergence that is now taking place. And this is setting the path with stronger control, with stronger alignment with party interests that go also beyond pure economic development and moving forward on that. And Xi Jinping is the one who has, I think, been very strong in forcing that upon the country. Speaking of 2035, just to try to Imagine what the Xi approach to this new development path would actually look like. If you and I were having recording this podcast 12 years from now after 2035, what type of economy and what would be the key characteristics of it that we could describe that would indicate that Xi's vision of a new development path has, has come to fruition? What would the Chinese economy look like? Well, highly organized, highly focused on priorities highly orderly, but with very small room to navigate and find something that is new. I think those would be key features that we would see if they were successful. But again, I think another very important element that we need to keep in mind, China is banking on the West to fail. So they might not have to perform that stellar if that is their baseline assumption of Western economic system failure. Do they believe that this new economic path can create a prosperous China, even if you see G7 economies, or the, quote unquote, the West, declining? Do they think a self-sufficient economy can basically more than compensate for a slowdown in, in advanced developed economies? Or do they understand that if the West declines, that China would be poorer? No, I don't think they envision themselves as poor. The question is, how far are they from how wealthy could they be? They might not be using the full potential. But again, here, I think this is where the deviation comes with the party's priorities. That is no longer the party's top priority. And I think that is a, a crucial element. And I think one sentence that sums it up, we also use it in the text, is that the message to the society is to tighten your belts and roll up your sleeves. We've gotten you this far, and overall, there's no more absolute poverty. There is a strong middle class. Now it's time to reprioritize. And we're not here to help you create excessive wealth if it's not in line with the property. So I think this is a shift that's taking place, and it's not an easy sell. Key takeaway number two, the leadership, meaning the Xi Jinping leadership, has no intention of isolating China. Dual circulation strategy aims to alter China's position in the global economy, remaining open to the global economy while boosting domestic consumption and climbing global value chains. 
Can you just describe just your own definition and understanding of dual circulation and then just unpack this idea? Because as I mentioned before we recorded, I think there is a heavy emphasis on understanding here in Washington, the self-reliance, self-sufficiency component of Chinese economic strategy. But I don't know if there's an appreciation for that doesn't mean isolation, that in fact, China in some ways wants to expand its ties to the global economy. So would just love your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think that would be an absolute misconception that China is trying to isolate itself. China is eager to basically replicate the position the U.S. has in the global economy, being a key provider for technology, for finance, being a key market for other countries. And it's leveraging its position to try to attract also the global south and also leverage on the elements of frustration that has built up in other parts of the world and is trying to present itself as an alternative. Now, I think this is something that China is still very far off. And now we have this discussion at the moment at the Belt and Road Initiative 10-year anniversary. And there's a lot of debate, has this been a failure or not? And how is this going forward? But I think this also provides only the first stepping stone to expand China's soft economic power and gaining a foothold in countries across the world, presenting itself as an economic partner and using that as a foundation to move into next fears, into the financial fears. I mean, we have at the moment, especially in the past two years, a lot of development, at least movement in the internationalization of the Chinese currency. So I think these are all efforts that are taking place and are not in line with any view of that China is trying to isolate itself. So it's more about they're trying to securitize their ties with the West, isolate them in some aspects, but it's, I think, a full-blown integration with the rest of the world. If we're imagining that the Chinese economy on a go-forward basis will be growing at a markedly slower rate than it was 10 years ago, and we've already seen some belt, no pun intended, but some belt tightening on things like BRI, if you overlap that with China's aspirations to continue or to strengthen its relations with the global south. Do you see China as having a harder time doing that with a slimmer BRI and also there's more awareness of some of the shortcomings of Chinese investment as countries have dealt with BRI and the lack of delivery on some of the initial hoped for outcomes such as being able to use local labor on some of these projects. So do you think China will have a harder time with a slowing economy pushing this agenda, or do you still think it has a lot of tools in its toolkit? I think they still have a lot of tools. And I think it's something looking forward is where we still have to spend much more time to grasp what this means and how it's even possible and what the world would look like if China really shakes the global trading order up and establishes its own way going forward. I don't think they have clearly figured that out yet. I think there is a lot of ambition but in terms of implementing it, I think is a different story. And so, but I mean, the current geopolitical situation is also providing a lot of opportunity that they're, I think, pursuing. And of course, it's always more difficult if the economy is growing slower. But again, I don't think the economy is in crisis. And if this is a strategic priority, they will continue to go for these targets. And as I mentioned, I think they're still far off in reaching these targets. And I think at the moment, it's also not their highest priority. I think at the moment, the highest priority is really securitizing against the potential of Western retaliation and access to or containing uh, China's access to technology and doubling down on the self-sufficiency targets and becoming innovative. And 
I think once they achieve that, they will assume that a lot of that will help them strengthen their position in the, in the global south. So I think this is part of the toolbox, basically building up the technology and the resources to provide themselves as an alternative. But it's definitely an uphill battle here. On that, let me go to the next key finding, which overlaps with this, which is China is reinforcing and strengthening controls over international trade and finance in an outbound investment and the flow of data and people that make up Fortress China. What if you could unpack this Fortress China concept a little bit? It is, as a conceptual device, and just building on our last comment of, it is both a fortress they're trying to build, but a fortress that has deep linkages with the external world. I don't have the quite mental image to put the two of those together, but describe this fortress. And I think specifically, what are some of these key measures that China is adopting? I mean, we we just talked about these broadly, data in and outbound investment, but what are the big specific pieces of either legislation, regulation, or in the ideological realm, which you think are most potent in building this fortress? So it's about maintaining the party's ability to control these flows. And I think the best way that I would always imagine it is looking at China's capital flows and its capital account system. So China over the past years have very strict capital account restrictions in place, but they've always come up with new instruments. If you think about the Stock Connect mechanisms and you have all these measures in place that are enabling much more capital flows, but each of these mechanisms work in parallel. None of these pipes is large enough to cause a significant amount of damage and they can close the valves. So this gives them a way to monitor things and still try to tap into the benefits of maintaining these flows. But they always have the opportunity to close off or restrict or come up with some obscure measure that nobody understands. And then just there's less flow through the pipe. And I mean, this is also a very fluid system, which I think also makes it difficult to understand. If we just look at the latest revision of the data exports, data export controls that have been put in place and now relaxed. So I think it's it's constant fine tuning and recalibrating the system also to the specific needs that China has at that particular moment. But I think none of these are putting China on track, coming back to the capital account system. None of this is putting China on track to fully liberalize its capital account because they would never trust that. So, and I think we see these elements everywhere. If it's people look at COVID and visas, look at it now, we have it with the data. So I think this is something that we find as a pattern throughout these economic factors that make up economic integration. Just building on this, I wonder if you can talk about your view of the role of foreign capital and foreign companies in Fortress China. I know as a caveat, it really depends on the company. So this is a bit of an unfair question, but if I could ask you to make a gross generalization, what do you think in Xi Jinping's head or in the policy design as they think about building a resilient economy that can withstand what they see as foreign pressure and containment, build new drivers of growth, for, as you mentioned earlier, this new development path, what are the broad buckets of foreign capital and foreign companies that you think are in the tent? And what are the ones that you think the Xi administration feels like are on borrowed time? Yeah, I think they're very strategic about the role of foreign companies. And I think there is overall also an acknowledgement that there it's necessary for foreign companies to act in China to facilitate competition. So I think that is definitely one element where they also grasp the understanding of the value of market mechanisms and the competition that results from that. They also have a role in contributing to China's supply chain security. 
that means by onshoring more of global value chains and R&D centers into China, especially in areas where China still is vulnerable. So I think this is where companies definitely get a red carpet treatment. And I mean, this also goes back some time. Just think about some larger chemical companies that used to have a joint venture requirement and these were dropped. So they're very pragmatic on how they try to cater to these companies that they do the investments that are in the interest of the country. So I think this is something that has shifted a lot more to being tech specific. If you're not in tech and not strategic in consumer goods and whatnot, I think this is something that in more lower value added stuff, this is something that China is not really interested in. So this is also companies are going to feel that. But again, here also, I think this is something that companies also need to keep in mind. They also have a role as a taxpayer and a employer. And a lot of foreign investment is, we always think about the around Shanghai and the Pearl River Delta maybe, but there's also a significant amount of investment in the Northeast. So economically struggling Rust Belt. And these companies are very important for the local economy there. So this is also a role. So I think in this changing landscape, in a changing economy, in a changing market environment, companies need to really define and understand the role that they have in China's economy and make their judgments on that. Two final key assessments from you and Jacob in this report. One is, quote, the transition towards consumption-led growth model is taking a backseat. I think this would surprise many given that one of the standard talking points you will hear just emerge from discussions in and around China is that there's an understanding that the economy has to move from an investment-led growth model given all the pathologies and the fact that you can't build a marginal mile of high-speed rail is not going to do much for productivity and that therefore everyone understands that it has to move towards a consumption-led growth model. Why is it taking a backseat? It's just not the priority. And I mean, this is a bit of wishful thinking. None of the economic indicators that you want to look at, if it's saving, it's a consumption share to GDP is pointing in the direction that anything is really changing in the economic system. And I think a key reason for this is that so far, the leadership has not really pursued the necessary economic reforms that would really facilitate stronger consumptions. And I think if we look at back, we talked earlier at the state of the Chinese economy in at October this year, a lot of that has to do with sentiment and where does this insecurity come from? It's because I think consumers realize there is no social safety net or a weak social safety net. Um, they are vulnerable if the economy slows down. And from pension reform to the household registration reform, this is really slow progress that has been made. And China has continued to kick the can down the road at this point. So I think it won't be until they really go after these necessary or pursue these necessary reforms that you will see a necessary shift. But that is also a choice. By doing that, it's costly. And that will again shift priorities and capital into a direction that is not really pursuing the national strategic targets that Xi Jinping has set for the country as of now, which is very strongly driven by this geo, this rivalry with the US and, and pursuing a stronger position in technology and innovation. So these are not compatible, I see. And this is what we're seeing at the moment. Final one to ask for a reaction. And this is where I'd like to get your big picture assessment on where this policy agenda is going to take China. You and Jacob Wright, it is becoming inherently difficult to reconcile economic interests with political ones and becoming obvious that pursuing geopolitical priorities comes with a price on the economy. As you 
think about this policy agenda remaining broadly consistent over the next five or 10 years? Or put another way, you both in this report write and argue, I think, pretty effectively that we should not expect some huge course correction coming from Xi Jinping. The third plenum is dead. It's not coming back. Geopolitical realities probably strengthen Xi Jinping's conviction on the need for a fortress. I don't think he's going to come to some self-revelation that he is leading the country in a bad trajectory. But I want to get your take on what is 10 more years of this type of agenda going to mean for China? Does it have sufficient fundamentals and a strong enough economic base after decades of rapid growth that it's going to be able to withstand the productivity inhibiting elements of a security development agenda? Or do you think that this could really lead China to something much worse? That is really the central question. And I think it's an open question. I mean, I'm happy to give my take on that. Stepping back a bit, I think if you look at China now, you know, we're impressed about its development, about how innovative it's becoming. And, and this is happening really quickly, I think, for some observers. We need to realize the time period this is coming from. So this innovation dividend that's happening now is coming from a time period where China was highly integrated, had nearly unrestricted access to foreign technology and capital. People flows were nearly unrestricted, at least when it comes to research and the like. And now the damage that is done to this system is going to challenge, I think, China's ability to remain innovative. Because basically, the party is telling companies in which areas they should pursue innovation. And it's no longer the profit-driven motivator for companies. It's more about trying to align their strategic thinking and their company with the CCP's interests at least for the relevant companies. And I think this has a ripple effect throughout the society. And then we see that with, with youth unemployment, we, we see it with the parts of the middle class where not all of them are going to be top-notch researchers and engineers and whatnot. And they see the other opportunities that have been also quite present throughout China. They're seeing this diminish and they're really feeling it at the moment. And I think it will be very critical over the next well, basically months or a or, or few years at least, on how they recapture this significant part of the middle class and of the society in order to not completely kill off this entrepreneurial spirit that has been driving China so strongly. And I think this is something that they haven't figured out yet. As I mentioned, I think they really underestimated how their decisions had weighed down sentiment. And it would be nothing worse for the country if you have a society that just loses this drive that they've had over the past few decades and just, I don't even know where it's going to go, but I've spent a lot of time in China. I've never had such pessimistic conversations with my counterparts. Nothing could beat them down in the past. They were always dusting themselves off and pursuing new opportunities. And now for the first time, I'm feeling they have a lot of weight on their shoulders. And even though they're not really precisely expressing this is because of Xi's economic policies, I think they're just struggling also on their own micro cosmos with these adjustments. And I think that's really the critical question. If they cannot convince that part of the middle class in society, China is going to run into trouble or become a highly inefficient economy, which will have its own costs. So I think that's something that will be very interesting to see how this will materialize over the next 
quarters, months. I don't know what comes out of the third plenum, but at the moment, I think they haven't found the right recipe. Yeah, and, and the article of the week that's being circulated around is Evan Osnos has a big, long new article in The New Yorker called China's Age of Malaise, which is obviously what you were just observing as well in terms of the shift in psychology, public psychology you're seeing in China. And just final thought on this is, of course, these trajectories you've laid out assume some high degree of or degree of political stability. And we just saw Li Keqiang at a sprightly age of 68, who as of August in his last public appearance looked fine, succumbed to a heart attack late last week. Xi Jinping is two years older, has a high-stress job, doesn't look like he's getting on his peloton every day. And so it's thinking about trajectories for China and the economy that begin to model in high degrees of political volatility, you get something far more drastic and worse. Not to end this on an overly pessimistic note, but (laughs) Max, I recommend both this report, but I would just say for anyone who is just trying to make sense of China, Merrick's does by far, I just think the absolute best, highest quality work there is on this. And especially your areas, Jacob and Miko on political economy, you guys are just unrivaled. So recommend everyone go over and and bookmark Merrick's and make sure you're getting all their stuff. So Max, thank you for joining today. Thanks to Jacob, if he's listening, for co-authoring this really great report and look forward to seeing you in person or virtually sometime in the near future. Thanks for the praise and always nice talking to you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 